Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. All right, go grab your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter five. Micah five. Micah's in the Old Testament. If you have to go to the table of contents, don't be embarrassed. You can go to the table of contents anytime you want to find a book of the Bible. Micah 5 is where we'll be this morning. Um, In in this kind of season of COVID, we've been doing giving differently. So a slide will come up on the screen with different ways for you to give. I'd just love for you to participate in that. It's an act of worship for us, not out of compulsion or out of guilt, but God loves a cheerful giver. So if God has blessed you and you've come prepared uh, to give, we'd love for you to participate in that way and just see what God does. Um, if you wanna give in person as we exit today, there'll be men with baskets out there. You can uh, put your money in there and, and we'll use it for the glory of God and the good of other people. We are in this series um, called The Advent of Christ. So we'll do five weeks of it. Uh, this is the second week. Last week, we looked at the idea of hope through the Christmas story. Uh, today, we're gonna study love. Typically, Advent would have a wreath with candles in it and we'll do something like that for Christmas Eve uh, but we study these, these ideas, these um, thoughts and themes throughout the Christmas story. And so last week we, we studied hope. Um, Advent just means arrival or coming. It's a Latin word. It means arrival or coming. The Advent season is built into the church calendar, liturgical church calendar. Mainline denominations have done this for numbers of years, uh, but it keeps us focused on Jesus around this season. But it's all rooted in remembering and rejoicing the original first coming of Jesus as a baby laid in a manger, and we're waiting and watching for his second coming, that he would come to make everything right with the world, that he would do away with evil, he'd establish a new kingdom, he would be the ultimate ruler, and we get to worship him for eternity. Uh, And as churches have progressed, we don't talk about that as much, but it's true, he is coming, he is coming again um, to defeat evil once and for all. And So we'll talk about that towards the end of this month. Um, Last week we did study hope and this week we're gonna study love. Traditionally, each of these candles or themes is connected to something in uh, scripturally in in the Christmas story in particular. Uh, Last week we looked at the prophets and the prophets declaring the hope that was to come. And we said that hopelessness is the doorway to hope. You can't have true hope until you reach the end of yourself. You can't have hope in Jesus until you reach the end of yourself. And we said that confession and repentance are the ways that we enter into that, that hope. Once we reach the end of ourselves, we can confess and repent and we can move into hope. And then this morning, um, we're gonna study, we're gonna study love um, in uh, the little town of Bethlehem. The idea of love is connected to Bethlehem traditionally on this Sunday. So Advent reminds us that we live in the already and the not yet. This is what Advent reminds us of. I think sometimes we, we forget this. Um, we live in the, Jesus has already come. He came as a baby. He came, he has already come, and he is coming again to set the world right. And we live in between the times. We live in between Christmas and his return is what we live in in between. So um, once he finally comes and makes things right, there will be no more evil. But in the world that we live in, there is good and evil. It's a conflict, even within our own souls. We see it nation to nation, a sibling to sibling, spouse to spouse. Um, we see it team to team. But we also see it within ourselves, don't we? We feel the conflict of good and evil. Paul says, I want to do the things uh, that are right. I, the things I do, want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, um, I end up doing. There's something going on within me, is what he says. And that's what we all feel. Advent is a time for us just to sit in that very fact. Um, 
1964, a sociologist named Marshall McLuhan wrote a book about media and the rise of visual media. And in it, he coined the phrase, the medium is the message. So he's made this statement that how things are communicated is more important than what is communicated. This is the medium is the message. How you communicate is more important than what is communicated. Now, this book was about visual communication, about visual arts, particularly uh, like television media and movies. Uh, Things were moving away from print media and print newspapers and books and moving into visual media. And McLuhan, through his study, had this premise, essentially, that the reason things are moving to visual media is because that medium is the message. The message is that um, we can no longer read. We can no longer understand. We have to see it. And what he saw coming was that through visual media, uh, we can get into our hearts and we become desensitized in such a way that the message begins to push us right and left. It begins to move our emotions, move our opinions, move our beliefs. If you've been paying attention in 2020, I think we can all agree McLuhan was onto something, wasn't he? In the 60s, he was onto something. I want to use this phrase, though, uh, to reveal to us this morning that the way that God loves us, how he loves us, is the message that he loves us. Uh, if you're a parent, maybe you found yourself in these situations where you find yourself doing the very thing you're telling your children not to do, like in that exact moment. Uh, maybe you're a teacher and you've realized that. Um, maybe, maybe you're like me, and I, sometimes I loudly and passionately love my children towards obedience. Um, I yell at them sometimes. Does anybody else? Uh, I passionately love them forward into obedience. And there are times when in my passionate love towards them, I find myself passionately loving them, saying, stop yelling, everybody stop yelling. Don't yell, don't raise your voice. Has any parent ever experienced this very thing? Good, I'm, I'm not alone. Uh, we're, we're together in this. These moments when you're like, oh, I'm actually doing it. And then as you raise your voice, they realize, well, that must not be yelling because you're saying not to yell. So then I will raise my voice to meet you there. And then you get louder, tell them not to yell. And then it's just this thing where everything falls apart because the medium is the message. You're saying don't yell, but you're actually yelling, which tells them yelling is okay, even though I'm saying yelling is not okay. Those of you who are married or you have um, significant others, it's one thing for somebody to tell you they love you. It's a whole other thing for them to show you that they love you. They can buy you all the cards and roses they want to, but if they're not washing the dishes, you have a hard time believing they actually love you. If, if, uh, if they're writing poetry to you and yet they're selfish and self-absorbed, the medium doesn't match the message. And what do you believe, the message or the medium? Well, you, mess, you, re, you believe the medium. You believe the how more than you believe the what. For many of us, uh, the what that God loves us has become white noise in our souls. We've heard it a lot. But it's like there's this medium that doesn't seem to match up sometimes. And it's a conflict in our own hearts and souls. Sometimes it's the medium of the way the world tells you that you are loved is often different than the medium in which God chooses to tell you that you are loved. So much so that we've grown a desire to be loved because of what we do. I want you to point out the things that you love about. What do you love about me? Why do you love me? Give me reasons why you love me. Well, the Bible doesn't do that for us. The Bible just says God loves you. Then there's a whole medium behind it. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna take the little town of Bethlehem 
and I want to pull it out of just its Christmas wrappings and I want to place it in the entire timeline of Scripture. And what I want to show us this morning is that God does love us. He does. But he doesn't have to say it as much because he's shown it for generations. All right? So Christmas for us begins back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter one, God creates the world. Everything is as it should be. He creates man and he creates woman. And he creates a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, which is perfect, perfection, paradise. And he says, you can eat from any tree you want to. You just may not eat from this tree in the middle. Now, why it's in the middle is because God's a really good parent and he understands how this works. And he says, don't eat from this tree. Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, who is the devil, to partake and eat from that tree. They do. They fall into sin. Sin then descends upon the world, and we have the world as, as, as we know it today. There's this moment, though, where God comes to meet Adam and Eve. And maybe you need to hear this this morning. No matter what sin you find yourself in today, God desires to meet you in your sin. He's not turned off by your sin. He's not um, afraid of your sin. He's coming to meet you. And he's not coming to meet you as a warrior to destroy you. He's coming to meet you as a rescuer to pull you out of it. And so he meets Adam and Eve. And he's gonna deal with Adam and Eve, but first he deals with the serpent, with the devil. In Genesis chapter three, it'll be on the screen. The Lord says to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have so deceived my people, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. You're, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity. Enmity means hostility. I will put hostility. I will put hatred. I will put division between you and the woman. Now, in the Hebrew language here, this the woman refers to womankind. I will put enmity, enmity between you and humanity. Between your offspring, devil, and the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the devil is plural. The offspring of the woman is singular. Because then the next phrase is, he will bruise your head. The offspring of the woman, of womankind, will bruise your head. Most translations say, he will crush your head. And you, serpent, you will bruise his heel. This is uh, the prototype, proto-euangelion. It's the prototype of the gospel. It's the first prophecy we have of the Messiah coming. This is in Genesis chapter three. And so every good um, Jewish person would know the Old Testament and they would know this, they would know this story. And they're looking for a Messiah in the Old Testament. And so because of Genesis chapter three, they're looking for someone who will bruise the head, who will crush the head of the evil one. And like you and me, if I'm looking for a head crusher, I'm looking for, uh, I'm looking for Liam Neeson. I am looking for Russell Crowe. Um, I'm looking for Mel Gibson in Braveheart. I want somebody painted. I want somebody yelling freedom as they charge. That's what I'm picturing. Is anyone else? That's, like I'm not picturing um, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. That's not what I'm picturing. I, I'm picturing somebody who has, who has a very particular set of skills. That's who I want to come uh, crush the head of the enemy. And so like us, the Israelites are looking for that person. The Jews are looking for that person. So they start to identify who it might be. And constantly they are disappointed over and over and over again. Because we'll learn that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And it's no more, um, it's, it's no more demonstrated than in the little town of Bethlehem. So let's start there, and then I want to expand, and I, wanna, I, I hope this morning you leave understanding that God loves you this morning. 
Um, they, were looking, they were looking for love in all the wrong places, right? They were looking for a Messiah in all the wrong places and never saw a Messiah coming out of Bethlehem. So Micah chapter five, Micah chapter five, verse two. It's gonna be familiar to many of you if you've been in church around Christmas time. Micah chapter five, Micah is a prophet declaring the truth of God and particularly the future Messiah to come. Micah five, verse two, he says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. There were two Bethlehems, one uh, near Galilee and one in, in Judea. And he says, this is the Ephrathah one. Ephrathah has two different Hebrew meanings. Um, Genesis chapter 35, you find uh, Jacob and Rachel traveling. Rachel gets deathly ill while giving birth to their son, and she dies. And Jacob builds a, a monument, a tent there, uh, a memorial for Rachel here at Ephrathah, which would later be called Bethlehem. Uh, it, means, it can mean uh, misery and grief, but it can also mean plenty um, or abundant. Just interesting, the dichotomy there. Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus would call himself the bread of life. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, if you're taking notes, underline, circle, highlight that, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. And from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. If we had time, we could study ancient of days. Essentially what the prophet is saying, there's a Messiah coming, but the Messiah has always been. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. From, from old, from the ancient of days is the Messiah coming. But God is saying in this town of Bethlehem Ephrathah, in Bethlehem, which he describes in verse two, is too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is where God chooses to send the Messiah. This is where it would all take place. Anybody ever been to Cherry Log, Georgia? Anybody been to Cherry Log? Interesting. Um, population of Cherry Log is 47 people. So if we were to load up on buses and go to Cherry Log, they would run for the hills. They have like, what is happening? We're being descended upon. There's an army coming. I mean, 47 people. That's, that's, that's some of your like sixth grade class. That's you. Like 47 people. That's your math class. 47 people in Cherry Log, Georgia. Now, Cherry Log is situated between Ellijay and Blue Ridge. It's kind of the path uh, between there. This, this is Cherry Log, 47 people. Um, Jimmy Carter visited Cherry Log. So there's that. They have that going for them. Also, they have a really good barbecue restaurant. And uh, what they're trying to be made known for is something called the Bigfoot Expedition. In Cherry Log, Georgia, there is a Sasquatch Museum. That's all I have for you. That's, what, that's what's in Cherry Log, uh, Sasquatch Museum, which sounds great, um, but probably not a destination for many of us, not a place we'd pencil on our calendar. Hey, this summer, we're gonna have to visit Cherry Log. Maybe you will now, now that you know about the Sasquatch Museum. But um, 47 people, not, not a lot going for it, not a lot of prestige, just a small little town with a barbecue shop and some stop signs and a Sasquatch Museum, just like every town you drive through in North Georgia, probably. So for us, though, we are on this side of, of Christmas, right? So when we think about Bethlehem, we think about uh, people traveling to go visit the birthplace of Jesus. It's, it carries weight. Matthew 2 says that it's no longer considered the littlest. Now it has great weight and significance to it. Bethlehem does. So we have a hard time. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to picture Bethlehem like Cherry Log, Georgia. At this point in time, uh, population of Bethlehem was 40 to 50 people. They were known because David came from Bethlehem, King David. Ruth and Boaz were from Bethlehem. 
This is what, this is what they were known for. Outside of Bethlehem was a particular like um, shepherding tower where they would, where some significant things happened there, but people weren't like, they weren't leaving mom and dad to go move to, to Bethlehem Ephrathah. Just like if you were to leave your home and your job to move to Cherry Log, Georgia, we need to sit down and have some conversations about the plans you have for your life. Um, so nobody's, it's not a destination. Nobody has a summer house in Bethlehem. It's just this tiny town kind of on the way to everywhere else. There's nothing much to it. So when the prophet Micah says, God's going to send the Messiah, the one who has been and will forever be, and you know where he's gonna come? He's gonna come out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. That's like if some prophet were to come on the scene and say, hey, God's sending the Messiah, and he has chosen the little town of Cherry Log, Georgia. And we would say, where, what's a Cherry Log? And where, where, is, Cherry, where is that? I have no, I've never been there. I have friends who have heard of it. I've, I've never actually been. This is, this is Bethlehem. God isn't looking for Italy. He's, he's not looking for New York City. He's not looking for Atlanta. He's not. He's, he's looking for Bethlehem. So this is what God has done. This is, this is how God works. He, Bethlehem has nothing to offer. They have a barbecue restaurant and a Sasquatch museum, and that's what they have to offer the king of the universe. Would you choose us? And God does. Let's go to Isaiah chapter nine. So turn to the left in your Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. If you just wanna take notes, that's fine. We're gonna do Isaiah nine. We'll go back to Isaiah seven. These are Christmassy uh, prophecies from the prophet Isaiah who predominantly pro prophesies of the Messiah who is to come. So you've got Bethlehem, and then we're gonna see another, another area here in Isaiah chapter nine. Isaiah nine, verse one. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Underline, circle, highlight that, that word Galilee. Again, we live on this side of history. We live on this side of Bethlehem, this side of Jesus' ministry. And so if you've been in church, when you think of Galilee, you probably think of a sea. You think of Jesus calling his disciples. You think of a lot of ministry happening in Galilee. We don't, we don't have the Isaiah perspective. We don't have the Hebrew perspective of, of Galilee. He's gonna describe Galilee, and then I'll explain to us what it actually means. Verse two. These people who walked in darkness, the ones in Galilee, the Galileans, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian." For every boot on the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Um, not, not Hallmark Christmas lyrics here. Like that, that's not gonna fit anyone. You're not gonna see that on some pillow cross-stitched that you bring out for Christmas. This is what Galilee is. Galilee is about 200 people. Uh, 200 people in Galilee. So us, right? We, we, might, we might be larger than Galilee today. We might be larger than the town of Galilee. And Galilee, he tells us, is a land of darkness, people walking in deep darkness looking for a light. Look at some of this language. Uh, the boot-tramping warrior of battle tumult, garments rolled in blood. There are oppressors, there's staffs, there's rods, um, things burned as fuel for the fire. 
Galilee is situated just north of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is situated on beautiful, fertile land that God has given his people. And so every nation wants Jerusalem. They want, because of where it's situated, what it produces, all the nations at that time, they want Jerusalem. They want to conquer Jerusalem. But all the good militaries, they come from the north. So it's like the opposite of college football. And so they come from the north. And uh, to get to Jerusalem, they have to go through Galilee to get to Jerusalem. But they want to conquer Jerusalem. So Galilee, um, Galilee is like on a normal college football season, it's like the first team or two that an SEC team plays. Like it's Northwest Arkansas State. And so the militaries come down and they see Galilee of 200 people and they think we can get an easy victory here. We can let our freshmen play and they'll get, they'll get some experience and we'll test out our new schemes. And this is, Galilee is this small town on the way to Jerusalem. So militaries would need um, some kind of a confidence boost, a quick victory, and they would, they would siege and rampage Galilee. They would rape and pillage, they would kill, they would burn down everything they could find. These, these are the words that are mentioned. Darkness, deep darkness, garments rolled in blood, boots on the necks of people. Uh, oppressors, yokes, staffs, rods. This is, it's dark. It's dark. So militaries would move through Galilee. They'd make quick work of Galilee then they'd make their way into Jerusalem. And most battles in Jerusalem don't go well for opposing militaries because God is in charge. And so then militaries, armies would leave Jerusalem and they'd go back home. And then how do they go back home? Well, they gotta go back through Jerusalem. And the only thing worse than an attacking military, an attacking army, is a defeated, retreating, frustrated army. And so the army would move out of Jerusalem defeated and would need another victory to boost their morale and they would happen upon Galilee and then Galilee would get it again. And they would rape and they would pillage and they would ransack and they would burn Galilee to the ground. And this would happen for generations and generations and generations It wasn't just a bad week for Galilee. It wasn't, oh, this random thing happened. It wasn't a bad year. It wasn't 2020. It was 2020 over and over and over again um, for the people of Galilee. This was their life. This wasn't Jesus healing people. This wasn't um, storms on the sea and, and a bunch of fish coming in nets. It's not that. This is destruction. It's smoking heaps of fire. It's dead bodies everywhere. This is Galilee. And God says, in Galilee of the nations is where the light is going to shine. In the deep darkness, the light will shine. Then look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. Who is us? It's the Galileans. To the defeated, to the darkened, to the broken, to the hurting, embers burning. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the first time the prophets refer to the deity of Jesus in Galilee. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. If anywhere on the planet needed peace and desired peace. It was Galilee. Please, somebody bring us peace because our 200 people can't defeat these armies, especially not when they're hangry and frustrated. We're not going to be able to defeat them. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal, the passion, the commitment of the Lord of hosts will do this. Galilee has never had anybody for them. And God says, I'll be for you. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Now, Galilee would be the place when Jesus would turn 30 years old and begin his earthly ministry where he would predominantly do his ministry was in Galilee. The light, of the, the light of the nations has shown in Galilee. That's Jesus doing his work in Galilee. So you might be picking up a theme. Um, God, God likes, he likes Bethlehem. He loves Bethlehem. It's little, he loves them. He loves Galilee. They are, they're struggling, they're hurting, they're, they're never victorious and they're, they're small. He's He's for them. This is where, this is gonna be ground zero for the gospel will be Cherry Log, Georgia and Galilee. This is where it's gonna happen. This is where God is going to change the world. Again, if you and I are writing the story, I'm not picking these places. I've got better places in mind, like better places to get the message out, um, better places with with stronger people. This doesn't sound like a winning combination. Well, look at Isaiah chapter seven. Look at verse 14 and 15. We know 14. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Prophet Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So we love verse 14. Then look at verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Do you know who eats curds and honey? People who can only afford curds and honey. Because if you can afford something else, you're not going to eat curds and honey. Um, Ever since college, I've never had the hankering for 79 cent ramen noodles. I just haven't. Now, back then, it's all I could afford. But now that I can afford a double cheeseburger, I'm not gonna eat ramen noodles. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to, unless I'm really desperate. Does that make sense? What this passage is saying is, hey, this Messiah, this God with us is going to live in poverty. He's not going to be wealthy. He's not going to have prestige. He's not going to have a castle. He's not going to have a crown. He's, he's not going to have um, Air Force Ones. It's, it's, it's not him. It's not. He's going to drink Dr. Thunder instead of Dr. Pepper. This is who Jesus will be. But again, if I'm writing the story, I, I need Liam Neeson. Like, I don't, what are we doing? I want Russell Crowe. But God sends Jesus and says, hey, he's going he's to be poor. So the Jews looking for a different Messiah at a different place, even to this day, have have missed what God is doing. But unless you feel like, well, this is just the Christmas God, because you know how, like at Christmas time, everybody becomes a different person. Like you're all holly and jolly now because it's Christmas. And for 11 months of the year, you were a complete jerk. But now, like now, you're so generous and happy and uh, your kids are so well behaved. They want to unload the dishwasher and they tell you they love you all day long and it's just things change at Christmas, don't they? They should. Like we, this, it creates something within us. People waited for two hours last night in line and they were all mostly kind about it, which if it was October, they would not have been so kind, but it's December. And so now, now we love Jesus and each other. What happens for us is we begin to think that Christmas God is different than the other 11 months of the year God. Well, sure, like sure he loved Galilee. Sure he loved Bethlehem, it's Christmas. He watched some Hallmark movies and now he's in all in his fields. And yeah, so now he loves all these places. Um, this is not an asterisk on God's character. This is not an aberration on his profile. This is, this is not different for him. This is who he is. Uh, the Bethlehems, the cherry logs of the world, the Galileans and the Galileans of the world, the poor and impoverished, throughout the scriptures, throughout history, this is who God is drawn to. This is, these are the places God is drawn to. This is how God loves. This is what he does. It's not just Christmas God. This is everywhere God. 
So in Deuteronomy, if you wanna go there, you can. Deuteronomy chapter seven. Um, Deuteronomy means the second telling. And so Moses has the Israelites on the edge of the Jordan River and they can see the promised land. They can see it. They've gone through generations and 40 years wandering and they see the land God has prepared for them. Like I said last night, people were waiting two hours in line uh, to come to our drive-thru. And they get up to the top of the hill and I'm about to send them through. And I said, man, thank you for waiting. I'm so sorry. And they would say, I hope it's worth it. And I would say, me too, because I don't know how this is gonna go. Um, but they would get there and I, you, it's like they can see it now, so they're okay. You know what I mean? Like back there in the lower parking lot, they didn't know what they're waiting for. And now they're like, oh, I see it. If you're a parent and you've taken your kids to somebody else's house or you've gone to like an amusement park or to a restaurant, right? If, if you're a good parent, you, you park outside, you turn the car off, and then you turn around and you face your kids. And what you say is, when we go in there, don't make me look stupid. When we go in there, remember the rules that we have, right? Hands off of your sister, fingers out of your nose, keep your mouth closed. We, we go through all the rules again. So Moses has his people, and like any good father, he turns around and says, hey, before we go in, and then he tells them the law all over again for like 30-something chapters, because he's a good dad. That's what good dads do. We're gonna go eat for 30 minutes. Let me take another 45 here to tell you what you need to do on the inside. So he gives them the second telling of, of the law. They're about to cross into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, Moses says, you're a people, Israelites, holy, that word means set apart, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, and this should take us back to Ephesians chapter one, chosen, predestined before the formation of the world. Uh, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, put yourself uh, in the seat of the Israelites and you're hearing Moses say this and you're thinking, you're dang right we are. Yes, we are. We're about to get the promised land. You wanna know why? Because we're awesome. Because they've forgotten that for 40 years they were disobedient kids. But God says, you are my treasured possession. And immediately, the inflated ego starts to happen. It happens for you and me too. It happens, doesn't it? When we realize God's great lovers, because we're so programmed, particularly in the South and in America, we're so programmed uh, to be performance-based in our love and how we receive love. When we hear that God loves us, that we are his treasured possession, we begin to recount the ways that, of course, God loves us. Look at what we've done. Yes, yes, he loves us. It's a pandemic and I am at church. Of course he loves me. Look how good of a Christian I am. Of course God loves me. I did this drive through Christmas till midnight last, me, last night and I'm back here at church. Yes, look at me. I am faithful. Of course God loves me. I play the guitar and I can play the three chords you need to play to lead worship music. So of course God loves me. Of course he does. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. I've done these things. I've done this. I lead a life group. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. And if we're not careful, uh, we fall into the trap of the medium of the world's love instead of the medium of God's love. And so as their egos are becoming inflated, Moses is gonna shut that down very quickly in verse seven. Uh, it's not because you're more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on, uh, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. Moses is saying, hey, just to be clear, um, God doesn't love you because you're good, because you're not. 
He doesn't love you because you're powerful, because you're not. He doesn't love you because you're obedient. 40 years have proven you are not. He doesn't love you because you've deserved this. You don't. But he loves you because he loves you. Verse eight, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of out with a mighty hand and redeemed, and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here's the truth for us this morning. God's love for you has nothing to do with you. Nothing. Has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with you. You cannot, I cannot, we cannot earn God's love. The moment we begin to earn God's love, he's just like everyone else on the face of the earth has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with him. Has everything to do with him. And the way that God loves you today is the way that he has loved from the beginning of time. He has always loved this way. The rules haven't changed for you and for me. The goalposts haven't moved. The way he chose and loved Bethlehem and the way he chose and loved Galilee and the way he chose and loved the Israelites is the same way he chooses and loves you. You were, you were least of the people. You are so small, you're not considered a, a tribe or a clan of Judah. You are walking in great darkness. You are continually being beat up. You are disobedient and you don't deserve these things. And yet I'm crazy about you. I love you, God says. I love you with a steadfast, never-ending, never-giving-up kind of love. And it has nothing to do with you. Nothing. And I've proven it, God says, from the beginning of time. I've always loved this way. Which is why we need to know the Bible for us is 66 books all telling the same story of God's love. Nothing changes Nothing, God's not schizophrenic and becomes somebody else in the New Testament. He's been the same God from the beginning. He is passionate about his people, jealous even over your heart. He loves you. But think about this, it has nothing to do with you. And there's plenty of examples. Think about Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham is a senior adult with a wife who is infertile, who cannot have children. And God, in his great design, says, oh, you're the perfect couple to be the parents of many nations. Out of your barren womb, Sarah, will come more descendants than you can number stars in the sky. They literally had nothing to offer for that role, nothing. They were like, well, I mean, we can make babies, so we'll try that. They literally could not. And God says, you, you. Abram will be called the father of many nations. What about Moses? Moses is left on a river by his parents, adopted by Pharaoh, who leads Egypt, who is the enemy of God's people. Moses kills a man. He's a murderer, and he runs. And then he develops a stutter, and God says, perfect, now you're ready. You're, stutter, you're a stuttering murderer that your parents didn't want. I'm gonna send you to go rescue my people from, from Egypt. That's not Liam Neeson. That's Sheldon. Uh, David, what about David? David is the smallest of, the, of Jesse's sons. It's so bad that Jesse forgot he had David. Like, I don't know what kind of parents you have, but at least that's not happening for you. Like, he forgot. The prophet Nathan comes to, to anoint a new king to take, to take the throne after Saul. And he comes to Jesse's house. He says, Jesse, I hear you got some boys, 
bring them to me. And Jesse's like, oh yeah, I got, I got the boys for you. And so then he brings these like strapping Trevor Lawrence people and he just stands them in front and he says, this one will be the king. And Nathan's like, no, God says no. All right, what about the next oldest? And Nathan says, nope, not that one either. All the way down the line. And then Nathan has to remind Jesse, don't you have another son? And Jesse's like, uh, do I? I don't know, one, two, three. Oh yeah, David's out there, but you don't want him. Like he's freckled and ruddy. He's really small. He's, not, he's certainly not the one you want. And Nathan says, no, go get him. And then God says, he is my anointed. That's the one. Had nothing to offer. And then David made sure that we knew he had nothing to offer um, when he commits adultery and then murders people, murders the husband. And then he is called a man after God's own heart. Oh, that's all it takes to be a man after God's own heart? Weak, ruddy, forgotten by your parents, an adulterer and a murderer? That's all I have to do. And then I'm a man after God's own heart. Like these people have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer to God. God calls Israel. Um, Israel is the most stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-headed people that have ever been on the face of the earth. You might know some of them, but this is who they are. They cannot get their acts together. And God continually reminds them, you are my people, my treasured possession. What about the New Testament? You've got the disciples who are called uneducated and ignorant. They couldn't cut it in religious school. And then Jesus says, hey, for my religion, I want you. Nothing to offer. Uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is a poor handyman. He has nothing to offer. Like so poor and with bad reputation that no one would let them sleep in their house on Christmas Eve. And then Mary, an unwed teenage mother, And you think, like we still think that I have to earn God's love. And God's like, would you read the Bible? Read what I've given you. Don't, you can't, you don't have to. Look at the people I use. Look at the places I use. I love Bethlehem. I love Galilee. I love the Israelites. I love Abraham and I love Moses and I love David. And I love Mary and I love Joseph and I love the disciples. What do you think you need to do? Nothing, nothing. There's a steadfast consistency of the medium of God's love. Do you see it? Do you see how he loves has been this way from the beginning of time and that should comfort us and enrapture us. It should quiet the voices of our, of our performance-based love and the lies of your guilt and your shame when God says, I love you. Look at Bethlehem, I love you. I love you. We're so programmed for performance-based love that even this, even thousands of pages of evidence can't cut through to us sometimes. You see, God didn't get tricked into loving you. Um, you didn't put enough filters on your profile picture that he fell in love with you. And then you catfished him and he showed up and he's like, whoa, this is not what I thought I was signing up for. He's not tricked, he's not deceived by you. You can't fake your way into his love. He doesn't love a better version of you. He doesn't love the future version of you that gets your act together. The one that's finally a good husband, finally a sacrificial wife, finally a good kid, finally an obedient student, finally getting A's in math, finally not looking at porn, finally giving up that drug addiction. He's not waiting for you to get better. He doesn't love a future version of you. He loves the Bethlehem you now. 
Now he loves you. He is not surprised by your humanity and your brokenness. Psalm 103 says that he remembers our frame, that we are just but dust. He's not shocked when you sin. He's not surprised that you aren't cutting it. Only God is good. Only he is perfect and holy and righteous. You are not. I am not. We are not good. There is no one who is good. Not one. But we still fall into this trap of trying to prove our goodness to God as if that's gonna convince him to love us. And God's saying, I've loved you the same way I loved Bethlehem. And I chose you the same way I chose her and I chose Galilee and the Israelites. Look at them. Did they have anything? They had a barbecue restaurant and a Sasquatch museum. Nothing. God is good, but you are loved by him. Loved by him. Deeply and passionately loved by God. No matter what you looked at on the internet last night, he loves you today. He loves you. Paul would say it's that love that compels us forward. It's not guilt. It's not shame. It's love, the love of God that compels us forward. And before you think I'm just robbing all this from the Old Testament, I'm gonna give you some New Testament passages too. Romans chapter five. If anyone understood the futile attempts to earn God's love, wouldn't it be Paul? I mean, the best of the best, the most pure of the pure. And he realized he couldn't do it. Romans chapter five, verse one, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been made right, we've been declared innocent by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, who has been earned by us, no. Who has, who has been given to us because we were good, because we went to church, because we didn't cuss, no. It's been given to us. The reason why our hope in God doesn't disappoint is because he has graciously and generously poured his love into us. Look at verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Who is ungodly? You are. I am, I'm not like God. While we were weak, which was the right time? He wasn't waiting for you to get it together. He wasn't waiting for your better attendance and for you to put the right bumper sticker on your car and to vote the right way. He's not waiting on that. He's not waiting on your righteousness. He's not waiting on your goodness. He's not waiting on your Bible memorization. He's not. When you were a sinner, while you were weak, not strong, we don't have to fake it anymore. We can delight in our weakness. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, Christ died for us. When we had nothing but a barbecue restaurant and a Sasquatch museum to offer him, he died for us. And it doesn't change when you become his son or his daughter. It doesn't change. The, the rules don't change. It's the same love. It's the same love. 
Look at 1 Corinthians chapter one. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul again would remind us that God has chosen, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame or disappoint the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Bethlehem, Galilee, the Israelites, Abraham, Moses, David, the disciples, Mary, Joseph, and you and me. He chose us. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you hear the gospel this morning that you are loved by God? It has nothing to do with you. Not a thing. Not a thing. For many of us, humanity begins to rear its head for us. And when we see our humanity, we are tempted to either fight it or to fake it. We're back to Adam and Eve, and their humanity revealed themselves, and we have to cover things up. When our, when our humanity reveals, when we see it, we are tempted to either fight it or to fake it. We want to fight our humanity. Those of us this morning who are achievers, you're trying to beat yourself into obedience. You're trying to beat yourself into discipline. You guilt yourself forward. You shame yourself into reading the Bible. And you have lost your first love because you're trying to fight your humanity. Your humanity will win. You can't discipline it enough. You can't fight it enough. You can't get up early enough. And when things go wrong, when things fall apart, we think, well, maybe I must have done it wrong. Maybe I need to read my Bible for four hours on Monday morning. I only did three and a half this week, and that's why this happened. No, it's not. You can't fight your humanity. Then there are those of us who are tempted to fake our humanity. Put makeup on it. We put a filter on it and we just lie about it. We don't want anybody to see our humanity, and so we fake it. We pretend that we read the Bible. We pretend that we're engaged in worship. We pretend that we love our spouse. We pretend uh, that we are good at certain things because we're so desperate to be loved that we're afraid that if our humanity reveals itself, we won't be loved anymore. So we fake it. And for many of you, the reason why you fake it is because of Christians. People who claim the name of Jesus, who have been the most judgmental people to you when you finally confess a sin. They've ostracized you, you've lost friendships, you've lost family, and you've realized, I'm not about to go do that again. What heartbreaking reality for the state of the church today that this isn't a safe place to admit our humanity. But the gospel, the gospel allows us to face our humanity head on. It allows us to stare in the face of our humanity and say, yes, that, me too. Yeah, that struggle keeps coming back up. I can't defeat this thing. I can't uh, over, override this compulsion. I can't get away from this. I feel like I, I keep gossiping. I keep spreading rumors. I keep looking at that. I keep thinking about this person in this wrong way. Well, the gospel allows you to face it and then allow Jesus to be the perfection for you. 
The gospel allows you to bring your humanity and God says, oh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, how I love you. The ruler will come from you. Oh, Galilee by the sea, there's coming a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father and a prince of peace. Do you hear it this morning in the Bible that God loves you? He loves you. Not because of anything you have to offer. God is good, and we are just loved. We get to be loved by God. Our boys have played soccer growing up, and um, there came a point in time for our oldest where it was just not good for our relationship for me to keep coaching because um, I got passionately loving towards him on the soccer field a lot and just wasn't good. And so um, this first year he was playing for a different coach and and a practice, I was out there watching and um, I am prone to performance-based love. Like, I don't believe I'm loved because of who I am. I believe I'm loved because of what I do and I have to fight it hard. And as a parent, um, I think by default, I've passed that down sometimes. So he's out there at soccer and coach is rolling the ball and he just has to, he just has to kick it into the goal from 10, 15 yards out. And, um, He's little, and so he misses it the first time, and little Charlie Brownish there and falls, and he just, he stands up and looks at me, like, in my eyes. Like, did you see that? I'm like, hey, man, good job. Let's do it again. Happens a few more times, not very successful, and then happens at the end, and the coach rolls the ball, and he kicks it, and it rolls and rolls and rolls and gets to the goal line and God sends a mighty rushing wind and it rolls the ball into, into the net and he's excited and looks at me and I'm like, man, that was awesome, great job. And um, we're walking away from practice and he says, did I do good? I'm like, buddy, listen, I don't love you because you're good at soccer and I'll never not love you if you're not good at soccer. I love you because you're mine. God loves you because you're his today. That's why. He chose Cherry Log, Georgia to be the birthplace of the Messiah. What makes you think you have to offer something to him? You don't. You don't. He's chosen you before the foundation of the world that you might declare his goodness to the world. And it has nothing to do with you. And because of his love for you, you are compelled to be the man, the woman, the student that God has called you to be. And it's so much better to work from love instead of to work towards it. He loves you, Bethlehem. He loves you, Galilee. He loves you. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, just let this truth sink in this morning. It's hard for me um, to believe that God loves me. And it's like the more success I have, the harder it is to believe that he loves me for who I am. But the more failure I have and admit to, the more I feel his great, never-ending love for me. How many of you this morning, to be honest, would say, I have a hard time believing God just loves me. Just raise your hand and say, I have a hard time with it. It's hard for me. I don't know that he does. Like, I, I work at it. Yeah, it's hard. 
It's hard. Because um, we know our past, we know our history. We know what's in our hearts, we know the darkness there, and it's hard to believe that God would love someone like us. But I want you to hear this this morning. God loves you, uh, not because you're good. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you could do to make him love you less. He loves you with all that he has all the time. And it's an agape love. It's an unconditional, never-ending, sacrificial love he has for you. You literally cannot earn it. But this morning, maybe the love of God would um, help your weary, anxious, striving soul to rest today. Maybe someone is here this morning who would say, no, I, the reason that I'm not a Christian is because there's no way God could love me. Like, I know too much about me, and I'll, I'll play the game, and I'll, I wanna be a good moral person, but to believe that God loves me and has salvation for me, that's not, I can't, I don't have a box for that. How many, anybody this morning who would say, no, I'm, I, I'm not a Christian because I don't believe God loves me. I don't think he could. I want him to, but I don't think he could. God is good, and he loves you, and he loves me. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the simplicity of worship and words that are true. I thank you for the complex, profound simplicity of your word. Uh, that when the Spirit moves in us and opens our eyes to see, it's like we can't help but to see it all, how much you love us. God, I thank you for choosing a town like Bethlehem. I thank you for choosing a place like Galilee to begin your ministry, to be ground zero for salvation because it gives me hope. In my own frailty and weakness, it gives me hope to know that you can use me too and that you love me. I pray for those this morning who have a hard time believing that you love them. God, would you make it known to them? Make it known to them through a spouse or a friend. Make it known to them through your spirit or through your word. Make it known to them through a song or a sunrise or a sunset that you would meet them where they are and remind them that only you are good and they get to be loved. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.